Welcome to The Podium, the podcast about optimal health and high performance. I'm Dr. Kevin Sprouse. This discussion was created as a resource for the patients in my practice, where I have the pleasure of working with a very small group of professional athletes and high-performing individuals from around the world. So why Podium? Well, it represents the pinnacle. The winner of any race takes their place atop the podium, much as any expert in their field is often asked to share their wisdom and present from the podium. For me, it represents the intersection of athletic and cognitive performance. Our podcast dissects the principles of performance for my patients and then disseminates pertinent, actionable information with them in mind. If you happen to have found us and are not a patient, that's great. I hope you enjoy. But please understand, if you're not a current patient, any information contained herein is not meant for you to take as medical advice. You need to speak with your doctor before implementing any change in your health and fitness regimen. There is no doctor-patient relationship established via this podcast. For my patients, of course, that relationship already exists. Season three of The Podium is brought to you by Heads Up Health. Heads Up Health is the ultimate health dashboard. It allows you to integrate and correlate data from Aura Ring, Withings, Garmin, continuous glucose monitors, diet logging software like Chronometer, and blood work from LabCorp. This is a tool I use personally and one that we use with all of our patients at Podium. You'll hear more from the founder and CEO of Heads Up later in this episode. In the meantime, check them out at headsuphealth.com. Welcome to this episode of The Podium. When we first started this podcast earlier in the year, one of the topics I knew I wanted to address was sports cardiology and the risk around uh, long-term activity, the benefit, obviously, of exercise and how to weigh those two. And knowing that I wanted to do that, I also knew that the one person I wanted to talk to about this was Dr. Aaron Bagish. Aaron is a great guy and a world expert on this topic. He's the director of the Cardiovascular Performance Program at Mass General Hospital in Boston. Uh, He's also the uh, medical director for the Boston Marathon. He serves as team cardiologist to uh, U.S. soccer, U.S. rowing, Harvard athletics. Um, He's a team cardiologist for the New England Patriots, the Boston Bruins. I mean, he is uh, someone who academically is at the forefront of sports cardiology, but also clinically in the implementation of this stuff. Um, And he's an athlete himself. Uh, He's an avid runner, someone who understands all aspects of this in a way that no one else does. So I'm really thrilled to bring this conversation to you, Dr. Aaron Bagish from the Cardiovascular Performance Program at Mass General. So Aaron Bagish, thank you for joining us on the podium. This is an episode that I've had lots of people asking me questions about and um, topics to address. It's cardiology, sports, endurance. How, do, how does all that come together? What, what are the aspects of heart health? So you are the man to talk to. Thank you for joining us. You know, it's great to be with you. So before we get into that, tell me a little bit about the specialty of sports cardiology and how you got into it. Because quite honestly, when I was coming through med school and residency, it was not anything that was on my radar. Um, and really until we met maybe five years ago at Kona, um, it, I didn't really know it was a a specialty in this sense, other than someone just being interested in it. Yeah, it's been a really fun kind of evolution of a specialty. Um, you know, 
cardiologists have taken care of athletes for for decades. There's nothing new about understanding that there's an interest in heart health and people that are athletic, but um, it really hasn't been a bona fide specialty until the past decade or so. Uh, And from my personal perspective, I came at this first and foremost as an endurance athlete that had friends, training partners, people I knew well in the community that developed heart problems, went to doctors and just were simply unsatisfied with their experience. They were treated like heart patients rather than athletes with a heart problem. And so I set myself on a course of figuring out how we could set up resources for people like this and went through my training. And we launched a program back in the mid 2000s here in Boston uh, called the Cardiovascular Performance Program. We really set out to do just that. And that is to be a resource for athletes all over the country, if not all all over the world, to come and work with us when they had either a risk of a heart problem, a concern about a heart problem, or even an established heart problem. And what what ensued relatively rapidly is that the powers to be at the American College of Cardiology saw this as a need and turned this into a a focus of of kind of professional development for them. And now there are sports cardiology centers at most of the major medical centers around the country, which has been really exciting to see. And along with that has come a lot of research and a lot of of writing about how best to do this. Yeah. I mean, to go from one program, which is it fair to say you all were the first one? Is that what you said? It is fair to say. To now a decade later, having them, uh, I won't say too ubiquitous, but like you said, at the major medical centers, major academic medical centers, um, that's that's a huge uh, kind of growth in the specialty. And I think to your point, it really hinges a lot on the fact that so many athletes, and not just professional and, and elite athletes, but so many active individuals with heart concerns don't have anywhere else to go. I mean, there's such a need for this. I even here where I am in Knoxville, Tennessee, you know, we end up sending patients out. Um, you know, we've got Emory and Vanderbilt fairly nearby. Um, Indianapolis is not so far. Uh, I certainly send probably most of my patients to you and you're kind enough to take care of them and, and tell me what in the world's going on. But it's so nice to have this specialty really growing and have resources for so many patients. I first kind of had my first run in with this while I was a fellow in sports medicine. I was covering a a cycling team. They were a U23 continental cycling team, development team for the team that I work for now. And we had a guy who passed out during training. And he passed out at the top of Maniunk Hill in Philadelphia, which is a, um, it's a short, pretty punchy climb. Like it's all out. And yeah, I got a call. Hey doc, you know, this guy's passed out and I'm a fellow and I'm just learning about this stuff. I was like, okay, did he stop and pass out? Or was he like, he just fell over? No, 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 no. He just fell over, like not quite at the top. And so digging into it, this had happened to him five other times. And he'd seen you know, doctors at five institutions internationally and all said, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And so when I looked at all that stuff and saw, you know, he had hokum. And when we looked at the that's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, when we looked at the echo, the numbers jumped out to me as abnormal. And we got him to a sports specialist who uh, made the, the proper diagnosis. But in my head, I recognized the same thing you did right there that, okay, this guy's had, I mean, to live through five of those, that that can't be that common. So to have all those second, third, fourth chances and finally get to the right cardiologist, the others were knowledgeable and well-meaning. It just wasn't their specialty. Yeah. I mean, well, he was lucky that he had you to pick up on that because the fifth one, he survived. The sixth one, maybe he didn't survive, right? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a scary story. And I think what it speaks to is that um, 
even really accomplished cardiologists that know the field well and, and take care of patients with heart disease every day um, may not be well-versed in what's normal for an athlete. And there's this concept that most cardiologists understand of the athlete's heart, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit about that. But what's truly normal for an athlete versus what's physiologically abnormal is something that a lot of cardiologists really struggle to understand. And so mild cases of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are often misinterpreted as being the athlete's heart and vice versa. Yeah. So let's do talk about that a little bit. The, so what we're talking about here is congenital abnormalities, abnormalities that someone is presumably born with, as opposed to the acquired ones, which we'll talk about in a minute, that uh, may be experienced by an athlete after the age of 30, 35. Um, so often younger athletes, but not always, things that you're born with. Um, how do we look for pathology? How does it present uh, symptom? like in terms of symptoms, but also from a diagnostic standpoint versus what you mentioned, athlete's heart, which is just presumably the heart growing as a muscle, like any other muscle as you, as you stress it. Yeah. It's probably worth just as we're talking about young athletes, differentiating congenital from genetic heart disease, because they are two different things that, that are relevant in this age group. Congenital heart disease are really things that are structurally abnormal with the heart that form during embryonic development. And those are usually pretty easy to diagnose issues with heart chamber sizes and configurations of valves. And we see some of that, but the, the biggest um, player, if you will, in young athletes are genetic things. They are born with that gene, but the gene materializes and becomes relevant as an abnormal heart at some point in their kind of teens, 20s, 30s. And that in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the, is the paradigm example of that. Sure. That's a good point. So um, that those issues of genetic, uh, genetic heart disease that really show up primarily, like you said, teens, 20s, 30s, usually in athletic individuals because of the demand they're placing on the heart. Um, the demand isn't causative, but it kind of puts them in the situation where the, the condition presents. I suppose you see it in non-athletes also, but maybe not as frequently. Is that fair? Yeah, it's, it's quite fair. I mean, we, we see it in athletes more commonly because we test athletes more commonly, but these are not diseases that athletes are more at risk for developing than the general population. This is just luck of the draw genetics. If you had a parent that has the gene, you get the gene, you're likely to develop the disease. Um, we see it again in athletes just simply because we look under the hood more commonly. Yeah. So in those athletes, we're all familiar with the, the dramatic and tragic videos of people you know, dropping dead on the basketball court, the soccer field, whatever. What are the, what are the things that get them to you uh, symptomatically to, to, to look for these conditions? Yeah, they come to us down one of two pathways. The first is that they're totally asymptomatic and they went through some form of a screening test, usually a 12-lead ECG that finds an abnormality that leads to the diagnosis. Uh, and the second, which happens just as frequently, is an athlete either notices or is observed to have some symptom that's concerning. So exertional shortness of breath that's out of proportion to the amount of work they're doing, chest pain, maybe a fainting episode like you described in your cyclist, and people and or the athlete themselves are concerned enough about those symptoms to ask for an evaluation. Now, when I was going through fellowship um, nine, 10 years ago, it, we were taught that one of the most common presenting symptoms of, of any of these types of abnormalities is sudden death. Is that still the case with the, the amount of screening, the increase in screening that's going on? Or are we catching more of these? Oh, no, that's definitely the, the needle in the haystack. We find many more living people with these conditions than tragic cases that we, that we diagnose on autopsy. 
So I think it's it's a function of screening, but it's also a function of um, the general medical community being more alert to the fact that athletes aren't immune to heart disease and realizing that symptoms shouldn't just be brushed off. We get most of our referrals from athletic trainers and coaches that watch their athletes and say, something's not right with this kid. You should go see a doctor. And so we're, we're finding a lot more people that are living with these conditions than dying with them. I think a big part of that is, like you mentioned, the awareness in the general medical community. Um, when looking at ECGs on on athletes, it used to be, well, that looks abnormal, but it doesn't look too bad, so it's probably fine. You know, it's kind of nobody knew the norms, right? And yep. and now uh, there was a, a fantastic paper that um, I believe you were an author on the Seattle Consensus. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, so this, this was a paper that came out um, a few years ago, 2016 maybe, that um, really codified, defined what is normal in an athlete, what's concerning, what's really concerning, when there is something concerning, what do we do? And so for me, I'm involved in cardiac screening of athletes annually. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at tons of EKGs on patients. Um, and it's still that document I go back to so frequently to say, okay, that, you know, I see that on the ECG. Let me pull up and see what Aaron and his colleagues have said. Is it, you know, is it problematic? And if so, what do I need to do with it? That type of guidance has been fantastic. And I thank you for that. Well, I'm so happy to hear that because going back to the initial Seattle criteria and then most re more recently, the international criteria, which I think is the paper you're alluding to, the goal was um, really to provide a resource for people that are in the trenches and do all aspects of sports medicine, but find themselves then at being asked, is this athlete's ECG normal? And, you know, unless you do that every day, um, you can't memorize all the patterns. You can't memorize exactly what's normal and what's abnormal. So having a, a readily accessible resource to help with that was, was totally the objective from day one. So glad it's working. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> um, so that's kind of looking at those genetic abnormalities. If we switch and look at some of the acquired ones, this is probably the most common question I get from my patients. Um, because honestly, if you've hit 25, 30, 35 years old, you're an elite athlete, you've been through some cardiac screening, you haven't developed symptoms, the, the likelihood of you having an underlying genetic issue is probably less and less by the year. Um, and what starts to take the place of that from a cardiac risk standpoint are the acquired abnormalities. And that would be uh, will you tell us what what are the acquired problems we look for in athletes? Well, so I think we can we can consider two different types of acquired pathology. Acquired pathology that is a direct result of being an athlete, and acquired pathology that comes independent of being an athlete that exists because of traditional risk factors. And so the two best examples uh, in those two camps would be atrial fibrillation, which is a very common arrhythmia in endurance athletes, and coronary artery disease, which is the most common reason why athletes over the age of 35 die. So let's talk about atrial fibrillation first. The atrial fibrillation, which is an abnormal heart rhythm that, um, again, we see very commonly in endurance athletes, is the best example we have of, a, of an overuse pathology. And that is that as we age, if we continue to push our bodies hard, it's something we know we're at more risk for than people that sit on the couch. And so when people ask me, what's, what damage can I do to myself from exercising? Um, the only responsible disease I know of that's, that's triggered by exercise is atrial arrhythmias with AFib being the most common. Do you think that is directly due solely to exercise or is it volume of exercise 
plus some other things? It's, it's definitely volume of exercise plus some other things. So there's the intrinsic physiology that um, happens during exercise and happens in the off time, which is largely a function of how the nervous system responds to years of training. But there's a whole host of other things that go into it, many of which are kind of lifestyle factors, alcohol consumption, caffeine, psychosocial stress. I mean, when you take a, care of enough endurance athletes with AFib, you realize that it's never just one thing. It's always kind of an amalgam, a, a perfect storm, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually heard, um, I heard one of your <clears throat> lectures years ago where you talked about waiting in line at a race for, for the, the Portageon and the company yeah. over her. And that really struck me that um, the athletes that we're working with who are at high risk for AFib have a high training volume. I mean, they may be ultra athlete, ultra runners. They may be Ironman triathletes. They're usually hard charging athletes, but they're hard charging outside of athletics as well. And those, those hard charging behaviors are established risk factors for AFib. Um, do you want to tell that, that a version of that story? Because I think it's really funny. Well, can can we save the story for when we talk about coronary disease because that's where it's most poignant. Yes. And but yeah. the, the, the but the analogy could be directly applicable to AFib as well. And that is, if you if you're standing around listening to a group of 50 year old endurance athletes talking about things, they're going to describe a hard charging lifestyle, both while they're training and all and also in the other 22 hours of the day where they're pushing hard at work. They're trying to be the best parent they can possibly be. They're burning the candle on both ends. They're drinking lots of caffeine. They're having a couple of beers at night to relax. So. The, the equation starts to add up there. And so, you know, you, you know, the phenotype. Absolutely. So those patients who are concerned, you know, maybe they're Ironman triathletes, maybe they're, um, you know, cyclists, whatever, but they recognize they have a really high training volume. You call it 15, 20, 30 hours a week if it's a professional. Um, and they are concerned in their 30s and 40s about mitigating the risk for potential AFib what is the best advice that that you give them in that scenario so two types of advice one is related to the way they train and race and the second it gets back to the lifestyle factors we were just discussing i think the the most important thing as we get older is to be very deliberate about building in rest and recovery and rest and recovery needs to be thought of on the micro level and the macro level so on the micro level once you're above the age of 35 or 40 to think you can have more than 2 days a week of high intensity work is wishful thinking. The body just simply can't recover um, after really hard workouts that quickly once you've gotten into your third, third or fourth decade of life. So a weekly training plan that, re that respects that and places emphasis on kind of lower intensity, high volume work on the other days of the week makes a big difference. The second thing is to think about the macro, and that is to look at a 12-month cycle and to really build in, and again, I don't have science to substantiate this. This is just all based on having watched it go well and watched it go wrong many times. Building in at least three months of, of being in a phase of active recovery. And that can be in the periods after big races. That can be in between per year. per year, right? And we in our program define that as a reduction in volume by 50% and the avoidance of intensity. So, you know, and for most endurance athletes, it's not that hard to do that. They they train up for one or two big events a year. And in the bricks leading up to those events, they need to have some down weeks. And after the event, they need to have a substantial period of recovery. It's the people that don't adhere to the concept of recovering, both on the micro and the macro, that tend to get into trouble with arrhythmias. Yeah, which, it, I mean, we can all kind of conceptually grasp that from musculoskeletal injury, too, because the same applies. You start to really push too hard, too hard, and you never let off the gas. 
and eventually you you strain something, you sprain something, you pull a muscle. Like it it happens across the board. So there's no reason to think the heart would be immune to that. And I want to make a point here to the listeners because you know we've got video here and we're chatting. They can't see you. Aaron's a super fit guy. He's not like and a fast runner. So it's not like he's sitting there telling people, oh, you got to take three months off. You got to, you got to go easier on yourself. And, you know, he's giving lectures and smoking cigarettes and doing stuff on the side. Like, cause we've all seen those doctors, right. They give this advice to an athletic population and they don't follow it and they don't fit the, the bill of someone we really can, can trust on the topic. That's not you. I mean, you, you train pretty hard. Yeah, and to be fair, I'm, I'm I also fit that kind of hard charging personality outside of my training. So, to be uh, totally honest to the listeners, um, I try very hard to adhere to the, the things that I talk to my athletic patients about, and at the same time realize that it's always a work in process. Right? I have to remind myself on a weekly basis that you know I did five by one miles on the road yesterday. Today is not a day that I can run hard, no matter what I feel. Right? And so it's a lot of it is about kind of repatterning and rewiring your brain as you get a little older to think about the best way for long-term success. And really it's mostly about dialing back a majority of the time and then just keeping the volume as the, as the foundation. Have you used any of the wearables, whether it's an Apple watch or an aura ring or whoop that kind of help give you some insight into uh, how recovered you are the next morning? Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in beta testing for a lot of these products as they've come to market, and 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 have used many of them in my own um, training and kind of living. And I'll say that um, two things that I think are very useful: anything that provides you with an objective metric of recovery and and heart rate variability is one way of doing that. Just simply checking your resting morning pulse is another way of doing that is incredibly useful. And I will tell you in the kind of the the anxiety and the stress of the COVID pandemic, I've actually found it harder to recover from workouts. And I think that there's something to be said for the stress outside of exercise being a big issue for many of us during this period of time. And the second thing I think is really useful is just simply going back to basics of heart rate monitoring during exercise and understanding how you can use that to make certain that on your on your easy days, you stay easy. Yeah. Right. Most of us, if we're left to self-regulate and we go out for an hour run or a two-hour ride, we tend to find this, this zone of intensity that sits right at our ventilatory threshold. It's enough to make us feel really good at the end of the ride, but it's not slow enough to allow us to recover, and it doesn't count for a high-intensity day. You're in a no-man's no land, right? And aside from the fact that you're happy you had a good ride or a run, it's not moving you in a measurable way toward becoming a fitter athlete. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, and especially to do that in a period of time where maybe you're not sleeping as well, you're stressed in the other 22 hours of your day, like it, it starts to become counterproductive and, you know, maybe it's good for a stress outlet, like you said, but if it's wearing down the machinery, then that's only a, a short-term benefit and long-term it's going to fall apart. Yeah. I'll just give you a quick anecdote. I, I what I do with my own training and I, and, and I think a lot of other people do this as well as we allow it to occupy different spaces based on the world around us. So there are times when you have the luxury of really focusing on training for some goal. And there are times where your exercise just is really an outlet, something to keep you healthy and sane. And when I'm in those healthy and sane modes, when I don't pay attention to how I'm working out, I will go out for seven runs in a row and run for an hour at a heart rate of 150 beats per minute identically seven times in a row. And that's just simply, again, it might make me feel better at the end of the day, but it's not measurably moving me toward being a fitter athlete. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I actually had a, a patient contact me yesterday who um, he wears a whoop and it auto detects, uh, you know, training basically based on heart rate. And it auto detected training for him uh, yesterday afternoon or the day before, I can't remember, during conference calls because it was a really stressful period and it did not pick up his workout later that day. And I, I kind of chuckled and I was like, oh man, that's, you know, that's really interesting, like interesting, funny, but that's not funny. That's, that is some real stress that's going on at work. And I, I thought it was a good cautionary tale that he pointed out and one that we, I think, fail to realize or recognize. And to have that objective feedback was really interesting. Yeah, I think um, the numbers are very helpful. I, I also think that you can get too much of a good thing with the wearables. And so I think just like we all need to have a couple of months of rest and recovery, I think it's useful for all of us to unplug for a couple of weeks every once in a while and just to remember how to listen to our bodies. Um, and, and that's best done during kind of the periods when you're backing off. Yeah. I, I tell my patients who are not pro athletes and not kind of working a training schedule around a calendar and those things that Thanksgiving to Christmas or whatever holidays you celebrate in that time, that's a great time to just set everything aside recover, be active, like hiking, do what you want to do, but like, don't train them yep. depending on what your goals are. But that, that works well for a lot of us who are just picking and choosing some competitions and, and really just doing it to be fit and try to try to be faster. And somewhat facetiously, but I think there's something to it. You, you have to also know when you become too dependent upon your devices, yeah. right? So when you wake up in the morning, you realize that your Garmin didn't charge overnight and you decide not to work out because it's not going to count if your Garmin doesn't track it. Like, yeah. you, you know, it's probably time to take a break. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that in my 10 year old already. So we've had to address it. Like, you know, he's got dad's old garments and, and if they're not charged, it's like, I don't want to go ride right now. It's like, you're going to ride with your friends to like, you know, do jumps and ride by the river and just go. Yeah. So, it's, it's funny. You mentioned that my kids have gotten into step counting during this whole COVID thing. And I'll sometimes come up and find my 12 year old and my nine year old in the bedroom at night before bed, trying to get to 10,000. And I'm like, guys, just go to sleep and we'll do it again tomorrow. Right. Right. Give you a good goal. So we talked a little bit about AFib and the, the risk factors and, and ways to mitigate those risk factors. Um, and, and that, is it fair to say that those count toward any dysrhythmia, but AFib being the most common? I can't, yeah. think, I mean, I guess we may see some A flutter in athletes, which that's a distinction that's going to be lost on most listeners, I think. Yeah, fib flutter and even some atrial tachycardia for those that are familiar with those terms are all um, kind of part and parcel in that discussion. Um, and those are all arrhythmias from the top of the heart that importantly um, don't cause sudden death. They don't cause people to pass out during exercise. They're just, they're symptomatically annoying for many people and and, and they're treatable. Yeah. Um, ablation, is that a treatment that you recommend to a lot of these patients who want to get back to being active? Uh, ablation is one option and we do a fair bit of it. There, there are also very good medication options. So, but let me back up and say that the very first thing to do is identify whether there are any modifiable lifestyle factors. So I would much rather make a recommendation to back off on the Starbucks or to back off on the beer. And oftentimes that really works. But in people that do that and they have recurrence of, of arrhythmia, um, there are medication options which we can use, which are very safe, which don't affect exercise physiology. And there are also ablation options. And the only way to kind of get it when to use those is to, to say that it's an, it's an individualized discussion for everyone. Sure. Yeah. So if we step away from the uh, arrhythmias, dysrhythmias, 
and we look at um, coronary disease. So the yeah. other main category of acquired uh, acquired conditions in the heart. Describe that to us. What are we looking for there? Yeah. So just going back to the the AFib versus coronary disease analogy for a minute. AFib again is a, is a pathology of overuse to some degree. Whereas coronary disease is, has nothing to do with how much you exercise. It's a function of the risk factors that you bring to the equation. So this is where the, um, the analogy of having heard the discussion on the porto potty line becomes relevant. And that is, it's a, it's a great story. I took a, a fellow of mine up to the Mount Washington road race a number of years back, and she came from a team sport background and didn't know much about endurance athletes. And I said, just listen, and you'll hear everything you need to know about why we see these people get sick. Four guys are standing in front of us, and they have this discussion that revolves around the amount of nachos and beer they had last night, the fact that they're, they're, that they're happy that they converted from being a cigarette smoker to a runner, that one guy's coughing, saying, you know, he wished he wasn't here with a virus, but he has to run this race. So all of these risk factors that have nothing to do with their ability to run, but have to do with their overall health profile, are right in front of you. And the importance to that is that First and foremost, as doctors, it provides us with opportunities to reduce risk in our patients. And second, it reminds us that no amount of running confers or cycling or any endurance sport confers immunity from coronary disease if the risk factors exist. And so we can't convince ourselves that we're running fast enough, far enough, cycling fast enough, far enough to not pay attention to blood pressure and cholesterol and that sort of stuff. Yeah, which, which is worth pointing out because I think, I mean, it used to be actually put out there by the medical community. I can't remember the doctor's name, but basically if you could complete a marathon, you would not die of coronary disease, right? Thomas J. Bassler, he was a pathologist practicing in California, pre presented autopsy data to suggest that if you could run 42 kilometers, i.e. 26.2 miles, that you were immune from coronary disease. And he derived those data from traumatic deaths in runners um, and found that he didn't have atherosclerosis and made the, made the statement that you can outrun coronary disease. And we know that's not true. I mean, we, we, see, we, we see endurance athletes with coronary disease all, all the time. But invariably, if you look under the hood, you find enough explanation that has nothing to do with how much exercise. In fact, probably the best story to put this into context is, is the story of Jim Fix, that many of your listeners will be familiar with, who came from a, an atrocious family pedigree of coronary disease. His father died in his 30s. And Jim just knew that he was at risk for this. And so he ran and he ran and never came to the doctor. He died at age 53 of a heart attack while he was running, but he probably bought himself another 20 years because the running did help move the risk factors in the right direction. But again, you just can't, can't get away from it eventually. So this is something that I've dealt with a couple times this year, peripherally through, through friends um, who have, have experienced tragic cases like this, where, uh, you know, somebody they knew was very active, uh, had been training consistently for years or decades, and then just drops dead of, of a, a coronary event, a heart attack. Um, and the question to me is often, the questions are often a couple things. One, you know, did the exercise kill him? Like, would he have lived longer if, if he wasn't doing this? Two, is he going too hard? Is it, is it a matter of pushing too hard? And along with that, kind of 2B, I often get, well, how high, how high of a heart rate is safe, right? So, and, and I feel like we may be reaching age as athletes where we start to pay really close attention to that, that high heart rate and worry that there's something inherent in that number that becomes unsafe from a cardiac standpoint. Can yeah. 
Yeah, so a lot to unpack there. Let me start first with this issue of dying during exercise. So the, the, this is a pretty well-vetted concept called the exercise paradox, which basically says that anytime you exercise, you transiently increase your risk of sudden death. But the more you exercise, the less likely your total risk will be. And so another way of kind of putting that into context is if you're if you're a routine endurance athlete and you're going to you're going to die suddenly, it's likely to happen when you're exercising, but overall you're far less likely to die suddenly than the guy you work with who doesn't go to the gym or doesn't ride or run. So that's an important thing to establish. Second thing is, you know, when these people die suddenly, is it real it's sudden from the perspective of it happening at one instant, but how often is it really the first indicator of a problem? And we certainly can't talk to people that have actually died, but we have a lot of experience talking to people that have had cardiac arrest and been resuscitated. And the vast majority of them will admit after the fact that they knew something was going on for a period of time, and they simply attributed it to not enough sleep. Maybe I have a chest cold. And so the kind of the message for listeners is that if there are persistent symptoms that you think might not just be easy to explain, just talk to your doctor about it because these these conditions, particularly coronary disease, which is the most common reason this happens, can be diagnosed and fixed pretty easily. Yeah, yeah, those are those are great points. Um, what about the the heart rate? Because that's one. Even in my own family, people often come to me and say, "Hey, I've been wearing this Apple Watch, and you know, on my bike rides or whatever, I've just been trying to keep my heart rate under you know one twenty. I don't want to go. I don't want it to go too hard." Yeah, so a couple ways of thinking through that. One is that if if you're truly healthy and have no underlying cardiovascular disease, there's no reason to think about restricting your heart rate, right? It we don't ever give people restrictive prescriptions that come to us that don't have heart disease. There's just no reason for that. People that have established disease, that have coronary disease that we have tried to fix and can't fix or have a heart muscle problem, we will oftentimes give them a a, a heart rate ceiling, which is defined individually based on what we do in the lab with them. But for people that feel healthy and have no risk factors, and there's not really any reason to restrict themselves. So if I'm coaching or advising an athlete uh, on their training plan, um, which I don't do, I'm just throwing this out there. Um, but if I'm putting together a training plan for an athlete and he's maybe 62 years old, uh, has had no symptoms, has been doing this for decades, probably on and off like the rest of us, you know, with, with varying intensity or, or at least varying structure to the exercise. Do you recommend any type of screening in someone like that? And and at what point can you say, okay, that person's good to just follow the training plan, push through? In someone that's yeah, in someone that's healthy, asymptomatic, high function, that has no traditional risk factors for heart disease, we don't recommend any screening. If you're 62 and you've been taking blood pressure medication for a while or don't know your cholesterol or maybe had a parent drop dead at age 40 from coronary disease, then indeed those people really should, and they're working with their coaches, find a doctor who can do some assessment. And kind of the bare minimum would be to check a blood panel for cholesterol, do some blood pressure monitoring, and and usually put these people on a treadmill to make certain there's no underlying coronary disease. Yeah. At that point, is it usually pretty fair, assuming they pass all that, to to say, I recognize it's individual, but um, to say the exercise for them is going to be, it's it's going to be better than not exercising and having some intensity in that program is better than just kind of a low level burn. If, if, if fitness is the goal, absolutely. I think that's very safe to say. It's also worth reminding people that when we talk about exercise, we want to ask ourselves why we're doing it. And exercising to promote health and longevity doesn't require high intensity work. It requires literally simply meeting the physical activity guidelines of you know 30 minutes, five times a week of moderate intensity. 
but for the listeners and for our patients that want to continue to push and have some competitive goals, once they're checked out and things are squared off, there's no reason for them to avoid that. In fact, there's a lot to be said for doing that. So Aaron, I want to be respectful of your time. I really appreciate you coming on, but I've got one more question for you. And and you kind of addressed this uh, earlier on, but in, in looking at all these, uh, the kind of navigating the potential downsides to the acquired conditions or recognizing the risk there and knowing that you're an athlete and a, really a world leader in addressing these things uh, from an academic standpoint, how do you structure your um, uh, your kind of interactions with the lifestyle components? You talked a little bit about modifying or moderating your training plan, um, but what are the things you do around that to make sure that your training plan is falls on kind of a healthy foundation and that the long-term benefits are indeed benefits and not risks? Yeah, well, I wish I did it perfectly, but I can give you some things that I strive to do. One is to allow my relationship with training to ebb and flow as a function of what else is happening in my life and to not kid myself that in the midst of an incredibly busy work schedule that I can put in 20 to 30 hours of training a week like I might be when things are slower. So I let my exercise take different personalities, if you will, based on the world around me. Um, big believer in routine sleep. Um, again, the science around sleep is murky, but I don't think you'll find an athlete anywhere that um, won't tell you that they feel better and train better when they've slept well. So I think paying attention to sleep hygiene, getting screens away from our faces for at least an hour or so before we go to bed, which is hard, increasingly harder to do, but makes a big difference. Um, I think alcohol in moderation um, is, an, is an important thing. And I think many, many endurance athletes probably drink more than they should. Um, and I think over the long haul, that can catch up with you. And I think stress reduction, which again, for those of us that charge hard and place a high premium on being excellent at everything we do, can sometimes be a, a, an important part of staying healthy. So whether that's meditation, yoga, actually once in a while going for a walk rather than a run or a ride, um, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And some of the listeners and my patients have heard me talk about the stress reduction that came with my time in Spain and kind of disconnecting from the way we do things in the US, the good and the bad, yeah. and, and doing it there. While I was there, Aaron, you were in Switzerland and I think had some of the same uh, experiences. So we, we can both attest to that. Yeah. I, you know, I think um, everyone should be as lucky as we, we both have been to be able to live in a different place and, and unplug from our routine uh, for an extended period of time. Because the, at least for me, and I, I suspect you found the same, that the, the, the health benefits of that experience were measurable. My training when I was living overseas felt as good as it did when I was in my 20s. Yeah. And that was just simply based on what was surrounding me. Yeah. If you go back and look at my HRV data, because like you, I play around with these the wearables and I'm often wearing at least one, if not two, to kind of, you know, do some testing with them. It was, there was a stepwise function difference from landing in Spain, living there for months and then coming back. Like it, it rose roughly 30% and stayed there until I came back to the U.S. So again, there's so, good and bad in the U.S., there's good and bad in Spain, but just the way the lifestyle sets up differently was beneficial in some ways. Yeah. So my question to you is when are we going back and why not sooner rather than later? Well, as soon as they'll lift the, the travel bans, um, I'm hoping that we go back in March. And if you're over there, you've got to come to Spain. We'll do some riding and running in the, uh, in the Pyrenees mountains and, and I'll show you around. And then vice versa in the Swiss Alps, which, um, 
are an absolutely amazing playground. I'm going to hold you to it. Sounds like a plan, buddy. Aaron, thanks for coming on. It was a good talk. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, my pleasure. This season of The Podium is brought to you by Heads Up Health. Heads Up Health is the tool I use to look at all the data from my patients, whether they're pulling in sleep data, training data, blood work. I was recently asked on another podcast by the guest, if he took my phone from me, what app would I miss most? And Heads Up was the one that I said, hands down. So I'd like to introduce you all to Dave Korsunsky, the founder and CEO of Heads Up. Dave, tell us a little bit about Heads Up. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Well, I, I come from the engineering world where we have these tools readily available to help us use data to analyze problems. And I just didn't see those tools existing in healthcare in any meaningful way. So we've put together a dashboard that pulls in from all the sophisticated wearables. We're completely device agnostic. Aura, Apple Watch, Withings, BioStrap, Garmin, MyFitnessPal. We integrate the continuous glucose monitors, Libre, Dexcom. We can also pull in your lab results, and that's where we start to go a lot deeper than some of the other systems out there. And you can start to look at things like changes in testosterone levels, changes in inflammation markers, changes in hormone levels. So it really pulls everything onto one dashboard. The dashboard is available to individuals or to teams, just like you're using it. We're a very small mission-driven company, just providing powerful tools to use data to optimize health. Yeah, the integration of all those things is what's so important to individuals and doctors like me who, you know, I use it with my patients and use it to, to see how the different variables are ultimately impacting that patient's health. So if you want to learn more about using Heads Up Health as either a doctor or an individual, um, reach out to Dave. Uh, you can reach him at Dave at headsuphealth.com. Dave, thanks for supporting this season. Thanks, Kevin. The content of this podcast is meant for general informational and educational purposes only. All listeners should speak with their doctor or medical practitioner before implementing any change in their healthcare regimen. If you're currently a patient at Podium, then you have an established doctor-patient relationship with me, and I'm happy to discuss this with you. If you're not currently a patient at Podium, Nothing in this recording establishes a doctor-patient relationship between us, nor does it constitute the practice of medicine or the dissemination of medical advice. Should you implement any information contained herein without consulting your own physician, you do so at your own risk. Thanks for listening to The Podium. To hear more, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Strava. Until next time, thanks for joining us.